Good morning. I'm Marlita Hemphill, and I participate with Women's Ministries and also in Serving Communion. Today I'll be reading 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Morning, church. Hope you guys are all doing well. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Gary, and I'm on staff here at Calvary. I spend most of my time at the Erie campus, but I'm really thankful to be able to come out to Thornton. It's so fun to see some familiar faces, but what's really encouraging is to see a lot of faces that I've never met before. And so when we decided to come out here a few years ago, it's so fun to see how God has been working over the last few years to continue to grow this community of believers, to grow in the likeness of Christ, to follow and to love Him and to obey His command. So it's encouraging to me, and my hope and prayer is that I can encourage you as you guys have encouraged me. We pray for you often as we remember you in our prayers at Erie, and so it's so fun to, to be here and to see how God has been working. So we are in week two of this series called This We Believe. This We Believe is a series about our statement of faith, what it is that we believe as a church, and how it shapes and forms us as a community of believers. Believing is knowing something to be true, something that you are sure of. When you know something that is true, it guides, it directs you, and it helps you to be sure of something and to place your trust in it because you know that there is truth in that belief that you have. So what we believe about God, about spiritual things, about the Bible, about the things of God is critical to the way that we live. What you believe impacts how you behave and ultimately affects who you become. That's what we should know as people is what we believe forms us. Last week, Mark started off the series talking about our article that is about the Bible and what it is that we believe about the Bible, how it's inspired by God, how it's without error, how it's used for correcting, rebuking, and teaching us. And so the scriptures are what we know to be true about what God has said. And so it gives us assurance and confidence about what God's work really is. And so as we look at the other articles, we built it on, we built it on the foundation of God's word. This week, we are going to look at the person of God, specifically God the Father. Over the next few weeks, we will look at God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit who are in a unique, loving relationship with each other. But today we're going to spend our time talking about God the Father. Over the last few weeks, I've been intentionally having conversations with a variety of different people in a variety of different walks of life, asking them the question, what is it you believe about God? Who is God? And the answers have been fascinating because it's been a huge spectrum of people. Some said that they didn't believe in God. Others said God is dead, non-existent. Others said that he's distant and unconcerned about the things in this world or, or my life. Others said they believe God created things, but he isn't involved in the things today. He's kind of stepped away. Um, others uh, said God is outdated. Others 
um, believe that Mother Nature is God or Mother Nature is God. Other believe about the God in the Bible, but they have little knowledge about the person, characters, and qualities of the living God that we follow. Which, which this means and leads to people having many misconceptions about God. And these misconceptions produce a false picture of who God really is. Unfortunately, many of us have a false understanding or perception of who God is. I've been reading a book in my preparation for this message by an English author, a theologian named J.B. Phillips. And his book is called, Your God is Too Small. A contemporary pastor wrote a similar book entitled, The Deity Formerly Known as God, and both wrestled with the ideas that many of us have reduced God into specific images uh, that keep people from seeing who uh, God truly is. Phillips writes this, first to expose the inadequate conceptions of God, which still linger unconsciously in many minds and which uh, prevent are catching a glimpse of the true God. I think there's a lot of truth in that statement as we've, we've reduced God so much that we are having a difficult time understanding and catching a glimpse of who God is. So I was thinking about what are some misconceptions that we might have, and I'll share a few that I came up with in my reading and just kind of talking people. One of the misconceptions is God as the cop with like a radar detector. I don't know about you, but... Uh, I have that feeling sometimes about God that that's kind of what he's like, is he's waiting to catch us doing something wrong. And this is rooted in legalism, and this is how many of us understand who God is, that he's a cosmic being who's looking for us to do wrong things. And I feel like I know this maybe a little too well, not that God is trying to catch me, but that police are trying to catch me. Because I have this natural instinct when I'm driving. If I see a cop on the side of the road, I kind of like freeze up, clench my steering wheel, and make sure I'm not doing anything wrong because a lot of the times I've been known to have a heavy foot and have been pulled over. And sometimes that's how I view God as he's looking to catch me doing something wrong when I kind of feel like I'm minding my own business. And that's what happens when we rebel against the law the laws of God is we have this guilt and shame because we're disappointing God when we, we do something. So God becomes then the moral police and we don't really understand why he has his laws that they're there to protect and provide for us. I remember being in a seminary class when one of my professors asked, why are you obedient to God? Is it out of love? Is it out of fear? Or is it out of duty? Meaning, do I have a relationship with God and I want to obey him because I love him? Or am I afraid of the consequences? Or is it just something I feel like I have to do? I have to obey him. So put yourself in this, this environment. It's Valentine's Day. And you go and you buy a nice bouquet of flowers for your spouse. And you come home and you say, I got this because it was a duty that I needed to do this day for you. It's probably not going to go over very well. It's not going to be received well. It's like, oh, this is a duty. No, it's supposed to be out of love. And that's why we follow God's ways 
and commands is because we want to love him, and that's what it means to be in relationship. It's what it means to be in relationship with anyone, is we want to, we want to do things that are going to make them feel loved, cared, and respected, and that's what we want our relationship with God to be. But many of us live out of fear, and the fear of the wrath of God, not even a healthy fear, but this fear that, that God is going to almost smite me, and I fear the consequences of God catching me doing the things that I know offend him and hurt our relationship. And so that means, causes me to live in a relationship of shame and guilt and separation from God. And so we just think for a minute, if our belief about God is impacted, how if we think God is always trying to catch us, then we probably have a relationship that is very um, uh, just distant from him. It's very superficial. So that's one misconception of God. Another one might be God is a meek old man. Others maybe think of God as like a sweet old man who sits back in his rocking chair and just kind of watches the world go by. I remember my dad's dad, his name was Grandpa Fred. And Grandpa Fred was a considerably older man. My dad is older. Um, he's an older father. He had me late in his life. And so I can remember my Grandpa Fred who just sat kind of in his chair and watched the grandkids kind of do his, their thing. If we were wrestling in his front room, if we were messing around, playing with toys, or we were running around on his property, climbing trees, catching lizards, all I really remember of Grandpa Fred was he was this kind old man who sat in his chair. He only had one arm because he had lost it in a plane accident. And I just remember his smile. It was just this infectious smile. He had these bright blue eyes. And as we would do things, he would just smile. Sweet, kind, gentle. But I don't even know if he knew my name. I still to this day can't remember a word he ever said. And so when we view God in that way, is that we, we think of him as distant He's out, of his, he's out of his prime. He's past his prime. He's out of touch. He's over the hill. He's distant. He's outdated. He's unconnected with our life. It's not so much that God is dead, but God is living in a retirement community. And then that's how we treat him, right? We call him every once in a while because maybe we need something. We'll stop by and we'll visit at Christmas or Easter or maybe a birthday um, we remember him at times when we still tell stories of the past and we forget about him until we, we need something or we want something. And we treat him with respect and reverence because we, we value their place in our life. But can he be expected to understand the complexity of what it's like to live in the world that we're living today? When we view God as a sweet old man, we don't lean into him regularly, trust him with our problems and issues because we don't believe he'll understand. And this is a view many of us have that keep us from God. Another one is God is the cosmic slot machine, meaning that the idea that God is random, he's inconsistent, he is biased with some people because some people seem to be blessed or others seem to be cursed. God isn't fair. Uh, Never know what we're going to get, um, where we're going to end up with God. God moves in mysterious ways or in outrageous ways or unjust ways. Um, so he, we don't know what he wants 
and no one can question him. And so we just look at this randomness of God rather than the God is the consistent and true and caring. Or maybe another view is the American Idol judge. People have a view that they have to earn the approval of God and live a life of, per, of perfection to impress God, to please God. Yet the view is that God might be more like a Simon Cowell who's critical, disgruntled, and impossible to please. So let me ask you this question. What misconceptions do you have of God? How have you reduced the creator of the universe to being very small and impersonable? What, do you, what box have you put God into? Many of us have built up God into something that he's not, and we have an incorrect belief, and it impacts the way we live. It impacts the way we interact with him. We think he's small. He doesn't have any authority. And so we live a life of worshiping a false God who is incapable of caring for our deepest needs in the times of our most difficult trouble. And so my prayer this morning has been over the last few weeks is to help expose maybe some of these misconceptions of God and then hopefully highlight or paint a picture of who his character is, what his qualities are, and how gracious he is. Because what we believe really matters. It shapes the way we live our life. And so this is the statement of faith that here at Calvary that we hold on to as we talk about the person of God. It says this, we believe in one God, creator of all things, holy and infinitely perfect and eternally existing in a loving unity with three equal divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and, and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to read a people for him, to, to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. This is what we believe. And in this statement, there are so many things I would love to take the time to pull out. But one of my kids, as I was preparing this message, said, Dad, people would rather have a short sermon than a long sermon. <laughs> so we won't go after all of these things. I just want to highlight a few of them that maybe will help us give a greater picture of who God is in his greatness in his goodness and in his graciousness. So the first one I want to highlight here is that we believe in one God who is the creator of all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the very beginning, God created everything in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether they were thrones or dominions or rulers, all authorities, all things were created by him and for him. God is the creator of everything and he holds it all together. I don't think we fully understand when we start talking about God is the creator. And the way he created is what Psalm, the way he created things is this by Psalm 33, 6. It says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. God spoke and it happened. This blows my mind because sometimes I ask my kids to do something or I give them fantastic advice to solve a problem they happen, they ha they're having and nothing happens. But God spoke and the universe was put into place. And I'm not sure if you know what's happened, but there's been a new telescope that's been launched out into space called the Webb Telescope. It kind of been out there since 2002. 
But I remember back in 1995, there was another telescope that was sent out in space because this was kind of when I was looking into things and it was called the Hubble telescope. And I remember one of the first images that came back was this image here. It's called the Pillars of Creation or the Eagle Nebula. And I just remember seeing this and finding it beautiful and spectacular and thinking someday, man, I want to go there. Now, I don't know if that's possible or feasible, or maybe after I die, I just get to go buy it wherever we're, you know, wherever heaven, that's probably terrible theology, don't live by that. But like, I just, I just think, man, I want to be able to experience that because I just find it beautiful. And you can see these bright stars in the background, and it kind of just blew my mind. Well, they, they pointed the Webb telescope at the same direction, and this is what you now see. 30 years later, look at the stars that now come into focus because we have a clearer lens. Like you start looking in that and blows your mind. And imagine 30 years from now, what the next telescope is going to be able to see. Like we, we get to be blown away by God. Here's another picture of the spiral galaxy. I just thought it was just beautiful that came back from the Webb telescope. And then here's another one of the Hubble and Webb. This was a picture of a whole bunch of galaxies in Hubble in 1995. And look at what the Webb telescope has allowed us to see here in 2022. And you start thinking, God spoke. And that's what happened. There's a, a great message out there. I was tempted just to play this message and sit down today. It's by a pastor named Louis Giglio. It's called How Great Thou Art. And you can um, go and Google it and watch it on YouTube. I highly recommend you spending 41 minutes listening to it because it's fantastic. But he paints a picture of the biggest star they have found so far. It's called um, Canis Majoris, which I think means the big dog star. So it's a huge star that they found. And he uses the comparison. And he says, if the earth were the size of a golf ball, you would place it on the ground. And the earth in comparison to this star would be the size of Mount Everest. Six miles, basically. So if the earth were the size of a golf ball, it would be six miles high. Another comparison says, if you take those golf balls and you spread them over the state of Texas... It would be 22 inches deep of golf balls. That's how many Earths could fit in this star. That's seven quadrillion golf balls that would fit in the size of this star. That's 15 zeros after a seven. It begins to blow your mind away when you start thinking about, and God created this one. That's just one of the stars. And he spoke it into existence. And then we're not even talking about the distance it is from us, right? We measure distance in light years. And we're not even talking about the speed that it's going or the heat that it's producing. And God spoke and it happened. When God spoke, the universe was put into place. That is how big the God we worship truly is. It's mind-blowing to me to think about the size and the speed and the distance and the heat that is produced. That's just creation. 
right? And so when we read in Psalm 19, 1 through 2, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The creation, when we look at it, speaks of God's huge, massive organization order that he has. And so that is the God we worship. But beyond the, the magnitude that we see in God, he also is concerned about the details and how what it means for life to survive here. I was just even thinking about how important the little bee is for us to maintain life and just the precision and thought that God put into everything. And he holds it all together. So not only can, does he create massive things, he also cares about the minute details that create life as we know it to be able to live and sustain and work together in perfect harmony with one another. And so when Romans 1, 19 through 20 says this, for what can be known about God is plain to humanity because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his, his internal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. He's the creator of all things and it's seen by mankind. It's on display all the time. And not only that, his internal power and divine nature has been expressed. Eternal is another word. So God is the creator. God is eternal as well. And so what does it mean that God is eternal? Is that he existed before the earth was formed and he was never created. Let's look at Psalm 90 real quick. It says this. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Before the universe was, God was he always has been and always will be. He needs nothing outside of himself. He is self-sufficient. Jude 25 says, God was before all time. God has no beginning, end, or succession of moments in his own being. He sees all time equally vividly, yet God sees events in time and acts in time. This is what Psalm 90 teaches us. Before the mountains were brought forth from the earth was God existed. He is everlasting to everlasting. For a thousand years in your sight is but as yesterday or the watch in the night. This is how God sees time as a thousand years as a day and remembers even yesterday as perfectly and clear as he sees today. The understanding of eternity is extremely difficult for our finite minds. We need a beginning. We need an end. We need a start. We need a finish. We struggle with what eternity really looks like to comprehend it. I had one person try to explain eternity to me, and he painted this picture. I'm from California, and so I love the West Coast and the beach there. And they said, this is what eternity is like, as if a seagull would pick up one grain of sand and fly it all the way over to the East Coast 
and drop that sand, fly all the way back to the west coast, pick up a second grain, a second grain of sand, fly it all the way back to the east coast, drop it off. And he does that until the entire west coast is empty of sand. That is just a second in eternity. And that's still a poor example because it has a finite time, right? It's super difficult to understand what it means that God is eternal. He's everlasting to everlasting. He is beyond time. He always has been. He always will be. And he always is today. God stands above time and is, he's able to see it all in perfect detail all the time. So God is the creator. God is eternal. We said like creating is kind of what he does. Eternal is his greatness. And then God is also holy, which is an understanding of part of God's goodness. And so as we get a bigger picture of God, we understand his massive power, his order, his detail through creation. We get a glimpse of his self-sufficiency and his eternalness. And then we think about what is his character like. And one of the attributes of his character that we see throughout the entire meta narrative of the Bible is that he's described as holy. From the Pentateuch in the Old Testament, through the history books, the writings, and prophetic literature throughout the New Testament and concluding in Revelation, God is referred to as holy. And what holiness means is to be set apart, is to be different, to be sacred, to be revered. To say that God is holy is to describe him as separate, that he's separate and that he is transcendent above us and beyond us. He is separate from all evil and he is perfectly righteous in all that he does. When I think of God's holiness, I think of the stories in the Bible where Moses sees the burning bush and he's informed that he's standing on holy ground. Or throughout the book of Leviticus, it continues to call people to worship him and says, holy, holy, holy is God. Be holy because God is holy. That's what they're supposed to do is they prepare for worship. Or you see it in the transfiguration um, of, of Jesus, where the veil is lift, lifted just a little bit, and his disciples are like, should we even be here? Because they're beginning to see the holiness of God is being revealed. We see it in Revelation when everyone will one day be singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is and who is to come. We see holiness explained in even the setup of the tabernacle, where where we're separating sin and evil to show how glorious God is. The word holy is used to describe both parts of the tabernacle. That there's the holy place, and then there's a veil that divided up with the holy of holies, or the most holy place. And the holy of holies is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, and where God was said to reside, to dwell in the holy of holies. And then the high priest, if you remember, could only enter in there to make atonement for the sins of his people once a year. And he had to go through a strenuous cleansing process so he could enter in through into the Holy of Holies. And even when he did that, they still tied a rope to his leg because if there was still something found impure about him. He would fall dead and then they could pull him out so no one else would have to go in. Being in the presence of a holy God is something that we don't fully understand. 
We see it in Isaiah 6, another great story explaining the holiness of God when Isaiah has a vision. is The Lord was sitting on the throne high and he was lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim. And these seraphim each had six wings, two that covered the face to shield him from God's holiness, two to cover the feet and two to fly. And they were flying around the throne room saying, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations shook and the voice that came from him and the house was filled with smoke. I don't know if you know what that would be like, but that would be one intense thing if I was there to be in the presence of God, the angels flying around, smoke filling the room, it's shaking, and they're singing the, about the holiness, they're talking about the holiness of God. And then Isaiah comes to this conclusion, which I think is probably where we should all be. He says, woe to me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. Because Isaiah sees that who he is in a comparison to God is that he is wrong, he is evil, he is, he is dirty, he is unclean. In comparison in the presence of God, he knows he is broken, he is messy, and he is indeed in, in need of a God to make him right. He is confronted with the holiness of God, of God and found lacking. It's a terrifying comparison to think about who we are in, in comparison to God. And that is why we need Jesus. And that's why I love the last sentence of this article. Because we see the, the great works that God does, the, his character of being eternal, his goodness in his holiness. And amidst all that, we see that he's a personal God who wants a relationship with him. Look at the last statement. It says this, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his glory. God wants a relationship with his creation. So I think about his greatness and his goodness, and we cannot forget his graciousness because we do not deserve to be in relationship with the, with the creator of the world who is eternal infinitely perfect and holy. But he desires a relationship with us because he is not distant and he's from the very beginning, he's desired a relationship with his people, with his creation. We see, we see it throughout, we, throughout the scriptures that God wants a relationship with us. So remember the God who is huge and massive and created the universe, that he formed you in your mother's womb because you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that he has a plan. There's a great book, the Jesus uh, Storybook Bible says, he called it the secret rescue plan, where his desire was to send his son, and he knew this would happen before the creation of the world, that while we were still sinners, that he would redeem us back to him. We knew it from the covenant that he gave Abraham, that God promised to bless all nations. And now through the gospel of what Christ has done and salvation is found in him alone for all people, whether you're Jew or Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, slave, anyone can be saved by the work of, of Christ. The hope is that we have is from the beginning of that God the, fire design, God the Father designed a way back to him so that we could have relationship with him through the death and resurrection of his son. 
And so as we gather and we think about who God is, my encouragement today is to think about not the way and misconceptions we have, to begin to really study the Bible and see who this living God is truly, what he's truly all about, that he's the creator, that he's a fire-breathing, star-speaking God of how he created things, that he is eternal and that he is holy and that he has desired a relationship with us. And so maybe the small view of God that we have, we begin to have this huge view of the massive God who loves his people and desires a relationship with him. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your word guides us and directs us to the truth about who you are. And Lord, I'm sorry that there are times that I have made you so small in my mind and in my heart because I don't want to be confronted about how amazing and great and good and gracious you truly are. I thank you that amidst, amidst your power, amidst everything you know and your abilities, that you, from the very beginning of time, created a way that we could have a relationship with you. And so, Lord, as we sing this song, may our hearts be in tune with you and may we know you and love you and follow you all the days of our life. In your name, amen.